Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. <laughs> and this is The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Do the right thing is over. Up your wake, up your wake, up your wake. Good morning, Miss Mother Sister. Now, Mookie, don't work too hard today. The man says it's going to be hot as the devil. I've been here 25 years. LaSalle's famous pizzeria is here to stay. Trust me. Mookie, the last time I trusted you, we ended up with a son. I know you can't stand it. You can't stand it. Hey, hey Sal, I'm going to put for the wall here. You want brothers on the wall? Love. Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. Uh, here we are. We're doing a little Spike Lee. I don't know if you heard this, Andy. We're doing a little Spike Lee. I we mean, are. It's the first time we've done a little Spike Lee on this show. No. That's right, because we did Inside Man. That is correct. Is that the only Spike Lee? That is. It's a, yeah, it's a little more of a, a pretty straightforward Hollywood Spike Lee, but yes, yes. we have done Yeah, it was Spike very Lee. different. That's Maybe that's why. <laughs> because he directed it like Hollywood Spike. It is a little bit of a sequel to this, yeah. though, because... It- <laughs> The police do bring Sal's pizza to feed That's the hostages. That's true. That's true. Yeah. In the Spike Lee Cinematic Universe, we're going to have to pay attention to that to see what other little <laughs> Easter eggs we find. Uh, we are talking about Do the Right Thing. Uh, it is a very controversial film from 1989, Spike Lee. And uh, we're excited to talk about it today. It is uh, to say it's yet another film that is a long time coming on this show. I think this is uh, that is a fair statement, especially after watching it again. Uh, I it's it's one of those. It's a weird movie for me to say that I get such warm vibes watching it. Is that weird? <laughs> it's you know, not a, it's, it's, it's not, not a joyful movie. <laughs> I, well. <laughs> I, I agree and I disagree. I mean, tell me definitely, why. Tell me why, please. Well, because there are really great characters in here, and that's what I think. Uh, when you say something like that, I think yeah. it makes sense because this is a neighborhood that feels very lived in. Like the people feel like they've been here forever. Everyone knows everybody. They all have relationships with each other. There is this constant back and forth between people that just feels like. Spike Lee captured the essence of uh, this neighborhood. And yeah, I, I think it feels uh, very much like home, like you're you're in a place that is lived in and you're comfortable because they're all comfortable there, even with the kind of the elements that we definitely explore in the context of the film, kind of the the subterfuge of of hate and uh, the, the violence that we end up kind of seeing as the film plays out. But um, but I get it. I, I think that I, that's a fair way to describe this. You know, what's what's interesting about it is uh, as much as this movie is a is a movie about police violence, um, it, it is more so a movie about race and family and the family by extension too, right? The family by location, the family by those who live on this one block in Bed-Stuy and uh, they fight like families do and they get frustrated. And when it gets hot, tensions get, you know, elevated and, it, and maybe the inner truth of some of the characters who, um, you, you know, who don't quite understand what is happening inside of them it comes out in a way that is uh, offensive and it leads to turmoil. But because this movie and I think because what Spike Lee was able to do with this movie is so much uh, a film about 
family and about the disagreements that exist in families, it is, to me, uh, a softer sell on the Spike Lee is an activist filmmaker front, right? I mean, it's a, and that's a thing that we hear, I, I think, uh, at least a thing that I am more generally aware of with Spike Lee that is that many of his films are trying to make this this activist point. And, and I think that's true. I think he is a, a, a director and a writer with a perspective and he is he is aiming to show us something, right? He's holding up that mirror. But I think he does it so expertly here. Uh, uh, because he has leaned so heavily on the family that lives in Bed-Stuy and it's his family and whether they're Italian or Puerto Rican or, or Korean, uh, this is – we're going to focus on the hate that comes up um, from the perspective first of family and then of race and culture. And I, I think that's a movie that that's, – that's why the movie has such an impact uh, on me at least um, and it makes it something that – I think I can see with clearer eyes, because even though I'm a, you know, white middle-aged guy, I can relate to so much more of this as a family movie, and I can be disgusted by it as a family movie, and I can be enraged by it, and I can also be in love with it. All of that, I think, holds up completely accurately. This is a film that asks questions and pushes and pokes and prods, but doesn't necessarily give you a clean answer. I think there are answers in here, but even at the end, when after the the big climactic uh, scene has happened out in front of Sal's and the police kill Radio Rahim and we have the just the riots and just everything that's kind of just left in the the remains of kind of the neighborhood are there. We have these two quotes at the end of the film, one by Martin Luther King, one by Malcolm X, who both had different views on violence. And some critics at the time when the film was released looked at this and said, Spike Lee doesn't know what he wants. He doesn't know. He's not even sure what his message is here. And I like, I, I don't know, watching this now, and, and maybe it's just something with time. I certainly wasn't ready for this film in 1989. You know, I, I don't think my brain was was processing films um, the way that they are now. But looking at it now, I am like, this. he is, that's exactly what his point is here. You know, he's, it's it's a hard way to decide which way is right. Is there a right? He's not going to answer that because it's not necessarily, uh, a right decision made at the end of the film here. But there are decisions that are made by people who react to situations. And, um, you know, they have feelings about what's going on in their neighborhood and they're, they're reacting to things that, uh, that affect them. And I think that it makes everybody incredibly human and it makes just the story that much more resonant, uh, regardless of what race you are, and, and so much more relevant also today because this story, I'd like to say things had changed, but really it fits in so effectively today. Uh, rewatching this, I just couldn't help but feel like it, Spike Lee was almost seeing into the future. It's just, it's amazing how how prescient this film is. It's, I mean, it's uh, it's a really strong film and it's really powerful. And um, yeah, I, I I like the way that you're describing this with this kind of this family sense of it because I I definitely think that that is all there, made by this filmmaker who 
for his third feature film, really was commanding his craft in in ways that you don't see in a lot of you know filmmakers making their third film. I just want to add this thing about whether you're whether you're white or black. I for me, uh, I feel like. This film, I'm absolutely with you. I was not ready for it. Uh, when I first saw it in 89, I didn't understand what was going on with it. It felt like a whole different world than what I had experienced. And that's just because of context. And I I wonder if, you know, this is a movie that needs to be seen more broadly because more people of my generation and that look like me would relate to it differently today uh, if they saw it. and saw it with the benefit of 31 years of racial struggle and increasing, not decreasing, not softening uh, division across this country and police violence and all of these things that are absolutely verifiably insidious across the cultural tapestry that is, um, you know, our country right now. And uh, I, I, I on on one hand I want that I feel like this is an incredible sort of um, message film and it it demonstrates I think as we get past you know the the climactic sequence and we look at the response to the ultimate violence right the police killing of of Radio Rahim and the the response to that the destruction of of Sal's and the next morning the weird sort of uh, rehabilitation that occurs as Mookie kind of pretends he still has a job like the message there as much as there has been so much struggle throughout the third act of the film uh it it is actually i think a message of hope and possibly healing and rehabilitation and and maybe that's why it feels sort of warm to me to watch this movie well i feel i feel like when i get to the end there with uh, with mookie going back to sal even after everything that just happened the yeah. night before saying hey i want my money and that whole reaction like the the kind of the argument that ensues because of that i i think that there's a few things going on there one the way that i was reading it because of the fact that we start that next day with mookie with Tina and his son, like he actually is with his family. I feel like, okay, so maybe through all of this, Mookie also has had a change. And and now he's kind of, you know, like his sister at the beginning is like, you need to grow up, you need to, you know, you need to just not always be have me helping you out. And even Tina is saying that to him saying, you know, move, grow up, you know, I can't remember what she's saying exactly. But they're all speaking this and He's the one who has the big turn at the end when he picks up that trash can and throws it through the window at Sal's. Yeah. And I can't help but feel like in the process of that, he does have a turn and he starts growing up and he realizes that there's a change that he needs to make and it, you know he needs to start. And this is a start of him being responsible now for his family. And he goes to Sal to get his money, despite all of this. And I think, you know, it's that scene, I think, said so much to me watching it this time. The way that Sal instantly reacts, which is how I would have reacted, like, you're not even, that's not even going to pay the damage you just did to my place. Yeah. You know, like, that's exactly, yeah. that's exactly how <laughs> I would react. It's like, are you kidding me? But then the way that they kind of go back and forth and Sal tries to give him, gives him double pay and Mookie gives him some back and all of this. And all of a sudden it's like, 
the tension is diffused. The anger is diffused. I, I felt like Sal saw Mookie and everything that just happened. And and because Mookie says, you're going to get your money back from your insurance company. And sure, I mean, it really sucks. I mean, it's a terrible thing that happened. But, you know, Sal survived. He's He didn't get mauled because, in a sense... Mookie deflected the the anger from everybody attacking Sal and his sons to everybody attacking Sal's restaurant. To a certain extent, I suppose that created a safer situation it, for them. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Hundred percent. I think that Sal also kind of acknowledges Radio Rahim died over all of this. You know, certainly there were tensions that Sal and Radio Rahim. And I mean, the rest of them bugging out, uh, everyone kind of created this situation that happened, but it wasn't necessarily going to end with somebody dying. And the fact that the police arrive, they put Radio Rahim in a chokehold and kill him. I think that said everything about kind of that situation. And the next morning, I felt like as angry as Sal was at the whole situation, he was able to kind of let go of his anger toward Mookie and move past it because it wasn't about that anymore. You know, there was a death that that happened. And I don't know, I just felt like there was there was a change there. I don't know. I just I really I really connected with that. No, I did, too. And don't you think and and I'm possibly reading too heavily into this, but one of the the bits of Danny Aiello's performance that I find so uh, oh, rich, wonderful is the the grieving that he is doing throughout the second and third act of the film uh, over the fact that his sons are kind of being ripped apart and and the fact that he has a son who's increasingly overtly racist and letting that letting those feelings get in the way of being a member of the community and it, it, so at the end of the film when i'm watching aiello grieving on the the stoop of his burned out restaurant after his speech of like i put everything into this every tile he could just as easily have been talking about what he was building for his family for his sons and that included mookie uh, you know this there will always be a place for you mook there will always be a place here i see you as one of my sons which ultimately uh, you know, was, you know, to me, the last, uh, the last straw for uh, his, his, uh, you know, actual sons uh, and, and their relationships with each other and with the family. And so um, for me, I think the nuance of his performance is he's grieving so many things. And yet here's the one who comes back to him, Mookie, the black son comes back to him and finds that little bit of reconciliation, I think is incredibly moving. I'm glad you brought up Aiello because for me, the the, the scene that um, helped just define him for me was when he and John Turturro's character, his uh, his older son, whose name I'm forgetting because they're uh, Pino, Pino and Vito. Pino, That's right. Yeah. They're like identical names, practically. Yeah. Pino is like going off on how much he hates the neighborhood and just all of the, he just, just so just racist and angry. And Aiello, uh, as Sal was just kind of taking it in, just like, you know, why, why do you have to be this way? And just his reaction was just so sad and, 
and kind of shocked and hurt that this is how his son saw the world. And and it just, it was a really kind of heartbreaking moment because mm-hmm. it was almost like a father who uh, didn't, didn't raise his sons to be the way that he thought he did. And now he's seeing this difference in them that's like, where did this come from? It's, it wasn't me. I don't, I don't get it. It was a really interesting moment for me. I, I, I thought that that scene with Aiello and Turturro was just, it's just like such a magnificent standout scene for this. That sequence in particular, um, he is communicating so much, like that whole experience of, look, how could I possibly have raised you here in this neighborhood with these people, you watching me feeding these people? How could you, my son, grow up feeling the way you feel? How could you have so much hate? Uh, and and I think that... Uh, I, that is a universal experience, I, I think, as a parent of of feeling that, you know, how how could what I have done led to this right now? Right. How could the choices that I made in raising you lead to you making this decision, good, bad or otherwise? Right. It, it's it is a mystery. And I, I, I think that's uh, that's Aiello's gift and, and what he communicates for me. Here. Really great uh, in a film full of great performances. I mean, yeah, it was, it was like I, I was watching this and I was like, I forgot how many people are in this movie and how like how big some of them would go from here. It was, yeah. it was kind of mind boggling to keep seeing face after face, um, not just new faces but old faces too. Seeing Ozzy Davis and Ruby D in it too. Yeah. I mean, it's just. It was just uh, crazy, uh, just a thrill to see such a fantastic blend of all of these people in him. Uh, truly, uh, can, can we talk just before we dig into the to to the cast? Because I definitely want to talk more specifically about a lot of these people, or at least some of these people. But can we talk about this this central act of violence? Because that that's a a big question for me uh, about how that the the killing of a black youth in this neighborhood by white police, how that is handled, how it impacted me, and how these supposed landmark movies over the years that are also violent and provocative are supposed to have impacted me. When you when you when I think about the 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 central acts of violence and the use of violence in in the film and what sticks in the memory uh, of sort of lessons learned about choosing to go this route of displaying violence the way you did. I mean, in this case, I found the the uh, the suffocation, right? The chokehold suffocation was uh, incredibly powerful and terrifying and uh, it and communicated, um, you know, a hundred times the violence even that was shown on screen just in the way they used sound and color and angles. And uh, I mean, it was it was horrific. And it was um, I, I felt like because he had spent so much time building up the act of family as that I talked about earlier, not to rehash that particular point, that act of violence made more of an impact on me than the systemic portrayal of violence in Joker. I didn't have as intimate a relationship with uh, Joker, and 
obviously I'm on the record as not being as crazy about that movie, so it's easy for me to pick on. But notwithstanding my personal opinion, I felt like the the experience of chaos in that movie was a distraction from being able to feel deeply about what he was going through. Mm. Structurally, I feel like do the right thing and choosing to portray the violence the way he did was uh, uh, made a, a deeper impact because I was able to to kind of find the heart of of the these characters in a in a sort of a deeper way, a more significant way. Yeah, and uh, that I think that speaks really pretty strongly to what Spike Lee is doing here, because as long as you can um, appreciate that within these characters, even if you're not connecting to them as as kind of a uh, save the cat type of protagonist, Mm -hmm. as long as you can see that that story is happening here with these characters, I feel like it can it can help you find a way through that stuff. You know, I I just feel like there's a lot that Spike Lee is doing here and saying here that uh, that puts that message forth can we talk about the look of the film a little bit uh and we should Ernest, definitely talk about the look because that's a Ernest pretty key element here i'm telling you it this it is a uh insofar as it's a story about bedsty and this this block uh <laughs> on the street uh it is a fairy tale it's like a hip-hop fairy tale and well, I love it. We have to say Ernest Dickerson, but also Wynn Thomas, production designer. Yeah. Steve Ross, the set decoration. Uh, Ruth Costumes. Carter, costume design. Uh, you know, I, I just think that the way all of these people crafted their part of this world to create this one, it is kind of this fairy tale, magical bed that doesn't really exist. Also, it feels like it's always on fire, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just like they, they do such magical things to take this real world and just tweak it just enough to give you this, this pseudo world that just fits perfectly in this world that Spike Lee is creating, whether it's the look or the way Ernest Dickerson and Spike choose to like Dutch tilt the cameras sometimes with particular characters or go handheld suddenly as we're dealing with a situation, get extreme close up on somebody, go into kind of a fourth wall breakage where they're staring right into the lens. It is Spike Lee. Staring right yeah. over the lens. You mentioned the Dutch, but there is this whole experience of having a character scream over your head directly that is wholly unique to the Spike Lee experience. And I want to add to your list of names the the name parade. If Stuart Allen, if there was an Academy Award strictly for crane technician, he would get it. This movie goes up and down and up and down, and I love it. Oh, plus through, like... After the whole thing, uh, the the riots at the end, we have that amazing single camera shot starting um, in the bedroom with uh, the mayor and mother sister as they're talking. And then the camera just pulls straight back through the through the apartment and it goes right out the window and uh, you see the neighborhood. It's just it's amazing that shot. It's a, it's a, and it's such a simply done shot. But, you know, when you say simply done, yeah, you know, that's... it's a really complex shot that took <laughs> a lot right. of time to get working because it's just it's so smooth and so beautiful. It's I, all throughout just everything. The mechanics of what they would have to do to that window, right, to move that camera, to extend that crane, like that's uh that's a shoot calculated i i have to imagine in days not hours yeah right it's it's quite a lot of time i think ernest dickerson actually said it was what it took them all day to just kind of 
plan that shot out to process and figure out what we were doing and everything. And that's just that's just getting the shot. That's not even mentioned, like you just said, all the other planning that goes into getting all the gear, figuring out how the room needs to be put together in order to make that shot happen. Uh, okay, so digging back into the cast a little bit. Who, who I, this is, I, I sent you a text, <laughs> the thick setting as I was watching this movie, that my experience with it was um, uh, a series idea, movies with actors who were in Do the Right Thing and went on to have crappy careers. Oh, wait, <laughs> there aren't any <laughs> movies on that list. The, this is an incredible cast that he managed to to get so early in most of their careers. It really is. And, you know, we were talking about Di- Danny Aiello so much already. But, uh, you know, just as a, a side note, Spike Lee originally was trying to to get uh, Robert De Niro to come in and play that part. But he couldn't, uh, he already had something that he had committed to, so couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just think that's uh, really interesting that De Niro could have been in this. But even without, with I I mean, I, I see the two... And I, I think Danny Aiello is the perfect choice, actually, in retrospect. I love seeing him in here. But I already mentioned Ozzie Davis and Ruby D. They're fantastic in here. Giancarlo Esposito, I mean, when is he not great? I mean, he's great in everything he does. And what I love about him is seeing him here, which I had forgotten he was even in this film. Yeah, I know. And then, and then spinning that around to everything he's done since then. And uh, I mean, he's a guy who's been just doing stuff since the late 70s. And uh, I mean, I remember seeing him in, in um, uh, well, I mean, what's the, the Breaking Bad, the, the Breaking TV Bad. show he was just, yeah. just in and fantastic in. I mean, Shot so in your good. backyard. Uh, close, yeah. Uh, my backyard one... <laughs> one uh, bit over but then just seeing him pop up again in the mandalorian so i mean he's all over the place there and i think that's uh, very exciting that uh, that he pops up and in such a a pivotal character too you know somebody who is so angry and so um always ready to get into sal's face about this issue over the wall of fame i just think is it's great i love giancarlo well it is it's it's it is just great. And and the way he is able to to amp up his own activism, right, is <laughs> right. It, and he just moves so quickly past Aiello, who's like, just get your own place. You could put whoever you want up on the wall. And you could tell from Aiello's perspective, that's a thing that he's said probably every day for the last 25 years that he's been uh, hucking pizza, but not for Esposito, right, for bugging out. That is a that was a trigger for him. And and that's where things go south um uh, fast i i i love his portrayal it was such a surprise and i'm with you i'd completely forgotten he was in there along with guys like john savage his face shows up in here um as the guy who who buys the uh um uh, buys the brownstone and gets to ha- they get to have that that exchange on the street, which I think is just priceless. Watching Esposito talk about, who told you you could buy this brownstone on my side of the street in my town on my block is uh, <laughs> is, is a real highlight of his uh, yeah. performance oh, here for we me. Talk, gosh, we talked about him in uh, uh, The Deer Hunter. I feel like yes, that was... Uh, that's right. And, and then I didn't don't even know if he mentioned that he was in Godfather Part 3 when we talked about right. that one. So. Right, right. Very small part here, but it was nice to see him pop up all the same. And we have a lot of firsts, at least a couple of of standout firsts. Rosie Perez, this is her first film, and Martin Lawrence, 
for both of them. Rosie Perez starting the film with that dance number, it it just kicks this film into high gear right out of the gate. It, there's so much energy. Uh, it's just, it's visceral. The camera work is alive. The way that she's dancing is just, you know, top notch, which she helped choreograph. It was just, it was a really wonderful way to kick off this film. I loved seeing her in this. And we should say uh, that she was actually discovered dancing in a club. Uh, Spike Lee saw her dancing and hired her for the role. And uh, so she wasn't, I mean, she wasn't even acting. She ended up later um, saying that she had a really hard time with this film because she was very uncomfortable in her first film doing a nude scene. And she was really afraid of what everyone would think. And uh, she didn't feel good about it. And uh, she said, you know, when Spike Lee is putting the ice cubes on her nipples, um, you don't see her head because she's crying. And she's like, I don't I don't want to do this, which I think is pretty shocking and horrifying to hear. And it really makes me it paints everything with her in a different light when I uh, look at this film. But I can't help but look at it and still say, you know what? It's still with all of that and whatever happened on set. Uh, it, it's amazing to see the energy that Rosie Perez has. And it was no surprise that she kind of took off as a as a screen presence. You know, she certainly had that. She certainly uh, had a way of making people uh, irritated because uh, she always is like really high octane, uh, really high energy. But uh, there's been a lot of stuff that she's done. And we just talked about her in a trailer uh, pick on the latest Saturday matinee. I can't remember which one. I think it was my trailer um, where she was in that as a counselor, I believe. So it's it's just great to see. Like, here's this woman that was kind of discovered in a club by Spike Lee, and she's still out there doing stuff. Yeah, it, it, she was fascinating. And it's interesting. I just heard a, a story that uh, highlighted uh, the some of the films that have have uh, exacerbated the conditions of of doing scenes of intimacy on set, and this film is mentioned because of her experience. And over the last you know thirty years and and more of doing you know scenes of intimacy in films that are not coordinated well, and so there's a whole new role called the intimacy coordinator to to be essentially the go between and the coach between the director and the writers and and actors to figure out what's appropriate, who's going to be watching, how is this going to work, so we don't have these kind of situations of uh, actors putting themselves at greater emotional risk to to do these kinds of scenes. It's very difficult anytime you're telling a story that deals with this sort of intimacy. I have uh, been on sets uh, where we've been making a project, and you know you have to respect that, and it has to be a closed set, and you have to kind mm-hmm. of talked with everybody and there's a lot of protocols going into that sort of thing and i always think back to this is kind of a weird um a, a weird um uh, uh spin but uh, project Greenlight. uh you remember that tv show that uh sure uh, uh matt and ben had yeah. been behind and there was uh, I, I can't remember the um the film it was the horror film with the monster and uh, monsters and everyone's in a hiding out in a bar what would you remember that one oh um, man no i i i didn't really track the films that came out of that yeah it was um uh anyway i just remember it was you know it was meant to be kind of a schlocky b horror movie and the the director 
And um, gosh, it's going to drive me nuts. I'm going to try to see if I can figure this out while we're talking. He, uh, 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 Gulliger, it was, um, it was John Gulliger. He ended up winning and he was directing this movie called Feast. And uh, he had to talk to one of his actresses about uh, about her nipples and uh, the the state of them, basically, you know. The, the state of them? Like, like you know, the condition. Like you know, could you see them through her shirt? Did, you know, was oh, there something they I needed see, to do? I see. And, the and state. It, yeah, and it was one of those sorts of conversations that was rather awkward. As this guy was, he, who you know had was doing this movie because he kind of won it in a contest and was trying to figure out how to talk to an actress about. <laughs> Oh, that's a about horrible this. condition. It was. It was really kind of just a difficult situation. And you could and the actress was just like, oh my God, I can't believe we're having this conversation. And it was like such an eye-opening experience to how uncomfortable uncomfortable it is to have to have these conversations when you're doing a scene of intimacy. And I guess it just goes to show when you are a filmmaker, you have to get past that and you have to learn to have those conversations because it is of utmost importance that everything uh, gets processed properly so that you don't end up having these situations where the actress is complaining about how you talked about them or in this particular case, you know, very... Are much complaining about how she was uh, uncomfortable and, and just the set situation didn't allow for it to be properly uh, taken care of. There's a long rambly story about that. <laughs> well, it's a horrible story and it just, I can't, I, I mean, I, I just can't imagine saying action on a scene where the actress is, is in tears because of something that you're shooting. I get it. I get what the vision was of the scene. And it's, it is, um, it's kind of an incredible scene, uh, the, the way it is shot and the way it is lit, and particularly the way he plays with, I, I don't, I can't even describe the, the sort of combination of, of some sort of mask and depth of field and uh, shadow that they play with their, when they're kissing at the end. I mean, that is a, that, that's a kind of a mind-blowing orchestration of close-up lips um, and conversation that I found incredibly moving. Uh, but, you know, like you said, like it recolors your experience with her performance in the film once you kind of once that that's outed it's one of those things that and we really don't need to keep belaboring this particular scene but yeah it is one of those things where you do have to wonder okay if she was having these issues why did they push to just have her do it especially the way it's framed like there's no reason it even had to be rosie perez nope uh martin lawrence is also a first for martin lawrence i love martin lawrence i'm uh I, i think he's a very funny guy and uh I think this is uh, it, it's great to see him in here. Uh, it's I, I, I say it out loud just to acknowledge it, he was one of the gang. Uh, yeah, of, that's that's okay. right. Yeah, he's that's he's in it, but it. it's not really yeah. like Martin Lawrence. It's like right. you know, one of the, one of the one of the crew. <laughs> right. So. Right. Um, it, you know, uh, performance of Bill Nas, Radio Rahim is, uh, I, I think, a really interesting uh, performance. And the way he uses the beatbox uh, to uh, as as sort of a shield um you know to to both portray, protect him and to portray uh power in the neighborhood i think is a is well and express identity right yeah right 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 
Yeah. And, and that, I think, was a big thing that came out when he and the the Puerto Ricanos were all kind of um, having a music off and, and you know, cranking their, their music. Who's going to win here? I, I didn't think it was so much about hating each other and their music as it was just about, about you know, letting their identity be present. And I think that was very much what, uh, what he was all about. See me, right? See yeah, me. Exactly. See who I am right now. Plus, um, I mean, he's the one who had the fantastic love-hate, uh, I don't know what you call those sorts of knuckle things that he's wearing. Yeah. But, uh, which was so great, kind of the little reference to Night of the Hunter, which we've talked mm-hmm. about on the show before, and how that kind of fit in, uh, just kind of that whole love-hate, you know, the two hands fighting each other, and, you know, hate is taking him down, but love wins. It was just like, that is his perspective, and I loved that that was a way that he saw things, and it, and it really was his expression of love was kind of in his music, even if Sal couldn't see it. And I mean, to be honest, if it was my restaurant, I wouldn't want that happening either, but it's just one of those, it's one of those difficult uh, situations, like how do you, how do you deal with that? Music is it was central to this and just the, the you know, Spike Lee's relationship with music and the, the projects that he had already been involved on and and uh, was uh, and, and it turns out would invest more heavily in him and his production company to to, um, you know, to work more in, in and around the music space. I, I think this movie does an incredible job of showcasing the music of this neighborhood in 1989. And and in fact, that is the thing that's actually not fantastical to me. Like, that's not the fairy tale. It is it is texture of this space and, and of this time. And incredibly vibrant, right? From jazz to uh, hip-hop to acapella to... I loved hearing Take Six doing the... Um, you know, doing the stinger for the radio station. Uh, and he would then go on and, and work with them on Do It Acapella, which was that awesome documentary. Like, they're just, there's just some great fabric of music uh, that, that he ended up using. Well, and, and you can't speak to that without also speaking about the disc jockey that we have, played by Samuel That's L. Right. Jackson. Uh, so wonderfully, Mr. Senior Love Daddy. Uh, I think that uh, that also helped define kind of the neighborhood and the fact that you have this DJ who's kind of the one who is almost like he's the he's in a God position. He's always looking at everything through his window. He's never actually out there interacting with anybody. I think that's really interesting the way that he he kind of interacts with the world. But also, he's the one who's constantly calling out like he's got that moment where he just rattles off all the different um, uh bands and and musicians kind of referencing as their point of reference for kind of their culture and uh, everything that he felt was uh, just so critical and i it's just like that was just a great moment to hearing that kind of expression of of identity with them yeah truly it, it, jackson said that he spent most of his time asleep inside because he had no scenes outside in the neighborhood <laughs> and so he slept a lot on this movie yeah you're just sitting in a room there's the one scene that i really love with him it's when mookie uh goes to deliver his meal uh to uh, mr senior love daddy and he is um uh he uh, brings Pino along with him, or no, Vito, actually, uh, to talk about Pino. And they're having this conversation. They only make it as far as the 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 sidewalk out in front of where uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Senior Love Daddy is, is sitting. And it can see them having this conversation. Meanwhile, he's in the background 
starving. And it's just like one shot. This whole scene plays out in this one shot as as he's just like trying to get their attention so that they stop their conversation and bring him his food. I just thought that was just a fantastic way to play that scene out for for some great uh, some great laughs. I do too. And and it, it really highlights again just the curious angles, like what they had to do to capture everything in this particular scene and what he was okay with. I think there are few directors who would um, see that and not think, hey, uh, that's weird. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try and find something else to do and not have an instinct instinctive response that, hey, we can make this work. This is going to be interesting. This is going to be compelling. This is not just, um, you know, yes, it's going to cut us off in a weird place on our body and it's going to be okay because there's going to be enough going on in it that it's going to keep people's attention. Um, and uh, it's, it, it is, it's bold, right? That having a vision that is, is quite so um, uh, strong. Again, you don't see that coming out of a lot of, uh, of, of, filmmakers making their third yeah. film uh you know he'd he'd done uh his short before them which is pretty long short it's like an hour long and then he did uh she's got to have in school days and then this and it's like wow this is a, a strong case for a filmmaker who i think you could call an auteur and i'm definitely looking forward to kind of exploring a couple more of his films as we see where he's going to go from here I just don't know what we're going to call him. Leish. Leish. <laughs> it just sounds so meh. I know. <laughs> like it's it's Leish. That's Leish. It's not. It's lethal. not as. How about lethal? Lethal. Yes, that's better. <laughs> that's definitely better. This was interesting. I didn't realize this that he actually got the idea for this film from watching an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, an episode called Shopping for Death, where the main characters discuss this theory that hot weather increases violent tendencies. Um, he was inspired by that. And then he was also inspired by, uh, well, and it, you get a lot of names at the end of this, you know, um, uh, in memory of these people. Um, it is a list of people who had been. Uh, killed by the police. You get mm -hmm. Eleanor Bumpers, Michael Griffith, Arthur Miller Jr., Edmund Perry, Yvonne Smallwood, Michael Stewart. Um, in fact, Michael Stewart um, was uh, put in a chokehold that um, is where he got the inspiration for how the police killed Radio Rahim here. Um, yeah, so uh, it's interesting to kind of take those two ideas, you know, just the this, you know, heat increases violent tendencies and uh, all all of this, uh, these situations of police brutality kind of creates this story from them. I I would add nowhere in there is a credit to Statler and Waldorf, who to me are the direct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, totally. Uh, uh, inspiration for our three uh, street side characters. <laughs> uh, oh, be what, who is that? Uh, was that uh, Sweet Dick uh, Willie? Sweet uh, Coconut Dick Sid and uh, ML. <laughs> That's right. Was that the other one? Yeah, and uh, that was. I, I got to get the the actors. One of them was Faison. Um, yeah, Faison. Frankie Faison. Frankie Faison. He was Coconut Sid. Robin Harris was Sweet Dick Willie, and Paul Benjamin <laughs> uh, was ML. If I if that's the other one, I, can't, I think that was him. But yeah, it was it was such a, a 
absolutely fantastic trio and uh, such a welcome reprieve to um, to hard things as it built in intensity, particularly through the second act. They were really funny and that they actually have sort of a central uh, character role in the final uh, kind of mob scene. Uh, you know, there's a there's a good pivot when they turn on the Koreans. Scary. It, it was. And but it, again, it uh, that was another moment where it felt like there was this this recognition of family, like you had said, you know, and they were able to simmer down the anger that they had for a moment and recognize, you know what? Not everybody here is is a cop and and or is is just a. Uh, creating these situations where they are doing something like what the police just did to Radio Rahim. And I I, I found that moment with the Koreans uh, to be another moment like like Mookie and Sal the next day, where it's like they people's tensions are high, but they realize luckily, uh, you know, at the, the almost at the tipping point, you know what? You're like us. We're family. And it just Mm -hmm. it it uh, we may not always see eye to eye and we may still end up yelling at each other when we're trying to buy stuff. But we're okay. And that 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 was a great moment of healing for me right there. I think every character in here was just so well used. Uh, It was it was really lovely. Uh, What else you want to talk about? I think that's largely it, but obviously this film was a little controversial just because, uh, you know, it uh, depicted some violence. And and uh, what was interesting is a lot of reviewers and uh, and uh, people at various festivals, like at Cannes Film Festival, were concerned that it was a film that would lead to riots. And I love that Spike Lee said, uh, you know, how much it bugged him because he said, uh, you know, I don't remember people saying uh, we're going to come out of theaters killing people after they watched an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, which I think is really (laughs) funny. Uh, Granted, I don't think Arnold Schwarzenegger had been making anything uh, with quite such a message uh, at at any point (laughs) in his career. Uh, but we still need to un- unpack it, predator again man that's uh, we didn't do it right that's right that's right <laughs> but also i think it's interesting that spike lee uh, brings up the fact that it's only white viewers who ever ask him if at the end of the film did mookie do the right thing i mean playing off of the title he said black viewers never ask that question and he thinks that uh people are looking at it in a way where they're not they're seeing what Mookie is doing um and how damaging he's being with Sal's property but they're they have it's almost like they've stopped seeing it as a reaction to Radio Rahim and what just happened with the the murder of uh-huh. their friend and it's interesting and i i mean i can certainly see that in fact i don't i don't think that i was really able to kind of click with that perspective of this movie until this recent viewing i i i don't think i had been i think i had been one of those white viewers seeing it that way and now i'm like i i and maybe i feel like it's a shift because so much police uh, brutality has been in the news so much over the last decade. It's just prevalent all the time, it feels like. And, and you know, I'm in Phoenix, and we've had a huge spike in that over the last uh, couple of years. And, uh, and, you know, it's something that our uh, police department has been really having to crack down on. And so I just feel like it's something that I am paying attention to now more. And so it just struck me 
totally different this time. And I'm glad it did because I think I finally got it, you know? Yeah, no, I, well, that's, I think how it, this is, this is the full circle experience. Like I, I do too. I think that's, that gets us back to where we opened, but that this movie, I think I saw 31 years too early and I wasn't ready for it. I didn't get it. I, I don't know if I get it now, right? I guess time will tell. Um, I, I know I in, enjoy it a lot. Uh, it, it is a movie that is incredibly provocative. Uh, for me personally, it makes me reflect on current events, the world around me, my my place in in my city, on my block. Um, and, you know, do I get it? Yeah. Do I need to? Maybe I can just be moved. It's not an experience that I that I am by nature living. So maybe I'll never get it. But I, I do. I do think Spike Lee has created a movie that that I can relate to. You know, if if you're human, I think you can get it. You know, I think that the message is, uh, I, I, I think it definitely speaks to a variety of people in different ways. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a, it is a challenging film. And I think strong filmmakers who aren't just making standard Hollywood fluff or, or I mean, and don't get me wrong. I love fluff. I love entertaining oh, films like the fluff. rest of them. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, but right. I love a movie with a, with a, a opinion, film opinionated filmmaker pushing, uh, the bounds and, and, and pushing at, uh, what, uh, how I see the world and just kind of making me think I, I love films like that. And I think that Spike Lee is really doing it exceptionally well right here. I, I know that, um, you know, it's almost pointless to talk about awards because Spike Lee is well known to have won so many of them and <laughs> not have a controversial relationship with them at all. That's, that is so right. <laughs> so right. It's also the opposite of that. This film um, did, it still was received really well. It, it uh, had 20 wins, 17 other nominations. Some of those wins were for, you know, the awards where they looked back. You know, uh, I think there was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Um, nominations and wins from the 2020 awards looking back at the film from the year 2010 mm-hmm. the gotham awards uh gave it a, an award in 2000 um uh you know the mtv um movie awards gave it an award in 2006 it's one of those films that that people come back to and revisit because it warrants that but looking at Looking at what it did for the uh, for some of the other awards, I'm going to end with Oscars. Actually, I, I had that first. I'm going to end with it. Um, it did win uh, best film for at, at the Calle du Cinema uh, Awards, where it tied with Redwood Pigeon, which I've never even heard of. The Chicago Film Critics Association and the LA Film Critics Association both gave it gave it the best film of the year at mm-hmm. the at the Cannes Film Festival. It won. The, no, sorry, it was nominated for the Palm Door, but it lost to Sex, Lies, and Videotape, another or kind of an indie film from Steven Soderbergh, an interesting one to take yeah. the prize there, I think. I, it's really interesting, and I'm not sure if I were, you know, if, if I were voting, I don't know that I would uh, lean that way. And I'm a big fan of SLV, as we say. Yeah, yeah. The Golden Globes, Spike Lee was nominated for Best Director, lost to Oliver Stone for Born on the Fourth of July. Same thing with Motion Picture Drama. Uh, it was nominated for that, but lost to uh, Born on the Fourth of July. Um, and Screenplay also lost to that. And then Danny Aiello was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but he lost to Denzel Washington in Glory. 
And then ending with the Oscars, uh, same thing. Danny Aiello uh, was nominated for, for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Denzel Washington in Glory. I really can't argue that. Denzel Washington yeah. really yeah. was great in Glory. Uh, screenplay, Spike Lee was nominated, but lost to Dead Poets Society. Wow. Um, boy, I have... Uh, I, I, <laughs> I love Dead Poets Society. I, I still feel like personally that would be the film i would pick but i feel like if dead poet or if do the right thing one i don't think i would have issues with that 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 isn't that is one of those i'd like to see replayed with today's sensibilities and just see where it where it would go would we get the parasite swing right exactly the other nominees were crimes and misdemeanors sex lies and videotape and when harry met sally <laughs> okay so that's a strong okay. lineup that's it a is a strong, strong lineup, lineup. Yeah. Now, here is my question for you, though, Pete. This is why I wanted to end with the Oscars. Um, we had talked about the cinematography and production design being so strong, um, even costume design. Best cinematography, 1990. We had Glory, Blaze, Born on the Fourth of July, The Abyss, and The Fabulous Baker Boys. Wow. I'm totally okay. I, I haven't seen Blaze, so I can't speak to it. Um, I know it's Paul Newman thing, um, but I really am okay with dropping something to put uh, Do the Right Thing on this list. <laughs> like, uh, Fabulous Baker Boys, like, the images don't stand out to me as defining it. I mean, maybe it's just, but still, I'm totally okay dropping it for Do the Right Thing. Oh, in a heartbeat. Come on. I mean, I, I'm a fan of the Fabulous Baker Boys, probably outsized fan, given the overall... <laughs> Like enduring quality of the movie, but what was the sen- the the message of the cinematography in that film that they shot a lot of stuff at night? Like, I, I don't I don't see it. It's it's all the beautiful mood lighting of the piano on the stage. You know, how I don't far know. can you possibly go with mood lighting a piano? Right, come on. <laughs> uh, and then uh, let's see for art direction, set decoration. We had Batman, which won. Uh, Driving Miss Daisy, Glory, The Abyss, and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Okay, all I mean, of those are strong. They are, but uh, Driving Miss Daisy feels like a period film, and mm-hmm. this is this is the controversy anyway, because we yeah. which we haven't even mentioned the Driving yeah, Miss right. Daisy controversy. That, this is the year that the, this one Best Picture, and uh, <laughs> and uh, Spike Lee uh, did not get uh, anything. Um, but Driving Miss Daisy, I think it's fine as a period film. Um, like the as far as the production design, uh, I would absolutely put Do the Right Thing on the list over that because they really thought hard about what they were going to do to create this neighborhood that felt a little bit kind of its own little world. I agree. I, if it's, It is ironic that that is the one film that feels like a natural drop. I don't know, honestly. And, and this is, again, let, let me out my bias. I have a bat bias. Um, I, I don't know if I would, in terms of production design, if I would take it away from Batman. Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'm oh, just good. putting. Okay. I'm just putting. Do the right thing. I didn't thing know on the if list. that was controversial. Yeah. Con- controversial. No. What is that? What is that <laughs> even the thing? Controversial. <laughs> introversial. Introversial. It's an introversial <laughs> opinion. <laughs> okay. Now, now, would you have put Do the Right Thing on the list for Best Picture? The nominees were Driving Miss Daisy, which won, Born mm-hmm. on the Fourth of July, Dead Poets Society, Field of Dreams, and My Left Foot. <laughs> yes, I, I would have put it on for Best Picture. Yes. I don't know what I would drop, though. Like, I think all of those are really standout films. 
Um, and they're all doing different things. And see, this is this is why are, are you see, I don't have as much of a problem with that. <laughs> With figuring out which one to drop. Can you pick well, it out? You're going to drop Field of Dreams. <laughs> even though you forget how much you enjoyed that film when we discussed it on the show. I know. And I forget so fast. I know you do, but you shouldn't because it's 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 baseball, Ray. It's baseball. <laughs> it's baseball, Ray. Right. Oh, man. What a movie. Uh, you know, I don't know what I would drop there. I, I think it's a really strong lineup of films. And it's that's why it's a frustrating situation, because in this is a situation why they shouldn't just nominate five flat out films, because they're assuming that there are only five of the top greatest films. And I think that they even though I'm still wishy washy with the rules now, I think at least it's allowing them a more conversation to have because do the right thing should be up there with these. As far as I'm concerned, I would put it on this list of these other five films because I think they're all strong telling messages and themes in different uh, in different ways. And I think they all echo that. I'm with you, man, except for Field of Dreams. I stand with Andy. <laughs> How to do at the box office. Well, for Spike's third feature film, he had a budget of $6 million to work with, or $12.4 million in today's dollars. The movie opened June 30th, 1989, opposite Great Balls of Fire and The Karate Kid Part 3. What winners for that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with Batman still at the top of the box office and many other summer movies still raking it in, this film still managed to open in the top 10, although it was ninth place. It did go on to earn $27.5 million domestically and $9.7 million internationally, giving it an adjusted gross of $77.2 million. All told, the film ended up earning an adjusted profit per finished minute of $540,000 for this Spike Lee joint. Not bad, Mr. Lee. Not bad. Uh, this certainly it may not have taken home a lot of awards, but it certainly uh, is an enduring film. And with that, I'm, I'm excited for us to dive in and rank it. I am too. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, you'll be taken straight over to this movie in the flick chart catalog where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up to ours. This is a terrible way to start, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Do Hudson the right Hawk. thing or the road warrior. Uh, do the right thing. So you have to say the Road Warrior. Okay. I mean, it's it, they're totally different films. They're and this totally is why it's frustrating. Because yeah. I acknowledge Do the Right Thing has a much stronger message, is doing a lot more, is is really kind of saying stuff. But it's the Road Warrior, which I just have <laughs> a visceral reaction to just how fantastic uh that uh, that movie is. Okay. And I know I should just say do the right thing so it ends up in the top half of our chart, but I it's the road warrior. This is the this is the dilemma of doing a podcast where we talk about largely films that we like, is that we end up having these things where the top half and the bottom half don't mean like, you know, the upper fifty percent or the lower fifty percent. Yeah. Right. That's accurate. So, yes. I I mean, I know that whether I win or lose, I have made the conscience <laughs> choice. You have done the right thing. I've done the right thing. <laughs> Doctor, I did the right thing. That's so right. whatever happens, I'm okay. All right. Well, here we go. Right. Uh -huh. One, two, three. Paper. Rock. Do the right thing wins. Do the right thing. Did the right thing. Yes, <laughs> it did. Do the right thing or oh, a film we just talked about, Les Samurai. 
uh, this one's uh, pretty easy for me to go do the right thing. I uh, I would say the samurai. That's fascinating to me, Andy. After were you here on the show just now when we talked about do the right thing? I yes, I I love both of these films. Remember, okay. Le Samurai may have come out for me the top of our French crime films. I know, I I know, but this is uh, do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, okay, you know what? I'm right. going to give it to you. I'm going to give okay. it to you. I okay. I'm going to do. I'm going to do the right thing. <laughs> give it to you. Okay. Now, let's see where Pete goes here. Do the right thing or Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. <laughs> Sorry, Spike. Pete, this is do the right thing. It is. Yeah, it is. I, and I know that I'm doing the right thing. Oh, I'm Spike, Scott Pilgrim as well. <laughs> do the right thing or LA Confidential. I'm LA Confidential. Yeah, LA Confidential. Do the right thing or Creed 2. Oh, I'm Creed 2. Creed 2. Do the right thing or live free or die hard. <laughs> <laughs> these the coming up against like live for your dry art is becoming increasingly comical at this point like i don't know what needs to shake up our list but we've got to move that one along uh it's live for your die hard it's so good i know it's it's fine it's good i'm do the right thing see and now i'm just embarrassed because i'm gonna say live for your die hard <laughs> <laughs> you do not have to be embarrassed for this andy you don't have to be embarrassed at all I'm not right. I am absolutely <laughs> voting for Hudson Hawk whenever that comes up. So that's I right. Get it. Exactly. Exactly. See? All right. Okay, here we let's go. Do it. Yeah. One, two, two three. Scissors. Rock. There you go. The free or die hard takes you it. You got one, Andy. <laughs> uh, do the right thing or seven samurai. Now, here, I will go do the right thing. Okay. Me too. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Do the right thing or time crimes. Ooh. <gasps> wow. Oh, I do love time crimes. It's a I'm brain say time crimes. Me too. Yeah. I'm going to do that too. Yeah. Oh, well, that puts Andy. do the right thing in spot 106 on our chart. 106 out of 442, which is, uh, you know, it's about a 76%. Do you know Barack and Michelle Obama saw this movie on their first date? I do know that. Isn't that <laughs> interesting? Fascinating. I saw Saving uh, Private Ryan on my first day of my life. <laughs> I saw Titanic. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that is fascinating. How did it do on your own list, I wonder? The, this is it's, one of those films. I, I at think the very that bottom. This, no, <laughs> that ended up at last spot. No, it's it's interesting. You have these films that, uh, that have a lot of strength and power in them that I don't see myself, uh, returning to as often stuff like this or Schindler's list where it's, it's a really strong film. I love what they're doing. I definitely want to watch it again and would really enjoy it because it's a filmmaker at his prime with using his uh, filmmaking tools in all the best ways, but it's a, it's a tougher film to watch. And so it came up against a lot of films, just like it did here, that I was like, oh, but I would totally watch this other one first. And so it ended up close to where it ended up for us at 1110 out of 4298 or 74%. Well, to say I'm blown away by how it performed for you is an understatement. This ended up at 86 out of 1438 for me or 94%. So for me, if I am to go by the algorithm here for uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel. Uh, this says it's a four and a half star movie. Uh, and I struggle to see where the stars fall. Andy, this might be another in a string of five star movies for me. 
five Except stars for the heart samurai. For this film. Let me remind you. Except for the samurai, which was which was so dumb, <laughs> disgusting, yuck. Uh, this absolutely was a five star and a heart film for me. Uh, just completely was enamored with uh, everything Spike Lee was doing. It just uh, just a masterful film. It, even though it came in at like you know, if you go by your algorithm uh, for my letterboxed uh, based on uh, my flick chart it would be a 74%. So um, I felt that was really pretty ridiculous. It's, it's absolute five-star film for me. I am just really moved by it for, I think, all the same reasons. I, though, and, and I think our conversation tonight really highlighted that we were both sort of impacted by the second half of the movie, but maybe discounted the first half of the movie, which is straight up funny. Like, there is some great stuff going on in here, and the texture of this block is super approachable and charming, and the way they handle heat and everybody's sweating and the kids and the... the I mean, there's just a lot to, that, uh, that gets you into the movie in a in a very kind way before it it moves into the hard stuff, and I, I think that makes the movie um, much more sort of universally palatable. And I'm excited to watch it again. I'm glad it's back uh, nearing the top of my collection because it's one that I I feel like I'm going to be watching with more people with a little bit more frequency. Yeah, yeah. I just also have to follow up on the story we were talking about with Rosie Perez. She ended up appearing in the Netflix series She's Gotta Have It, which is based on Spike Lee's film, portraying her character again and revealing that uh, she and Mookie are, you know, the parents of one of the characters um, on that show. And so clearly there had been, just like in the film, some other reconciliation, apparently. So. There you go. All right, Andy. Well, this was the first in our little series of Spike Lee films. Where do we go from here? We're going to be jumping up all the way to the year 2000. And we're going to be looking at a very interesting uh, movie that uh, until Criterion decided to all of a sudden do a release of it this year, I felt like had uh, had oft been forgotten. But it was a very, very interesting film. And it is the film Bamboozled. Very interesting indeed. Hard to come by until it comes out, which will be within days of this very episode going live. So uh, if you're following along, uh, just know it's coming and you should check it out because it's a fascinating film. When the movie ends, the conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Well, sort of. Should we, is there a way we can briefly characterize the general uh, state of one-star Amazon reviews? How would you do that? Well, I think it's it's fair to say that rarely do we dig into the one-star reviews only to find that most of them really didn't like it, as opposed to one-star reviews complaining about the movie skipped or it was a bad transfer or something like that. We get all the time when we're looking at one-star reviews. Yeah, yeah. And I think, the that this, I think let's or... just say the one-star reviews here speak to the fact that Spike Lee is a controversial filmmaker pushing buttons, and a lot of people did not like their buttons getting pushed. Is that a fair way to describe it? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think that's fair. You know, I I, I would add that uh, because I had said earlier that uh, I don't know if I'll ever get it. A number of 
the reviews that are in that one star territory are reviews of people who say, I'm a black person and I'm offended by this movie because. And that is what I mean. That is what causes me to question my experience with this movie because of who I am. And I'm never going to be able to, to, to see or to experience what these reviewers are experiencing when they watch this movie. Uh, and, and so, you know, like you said, all we can do is bring our own eyes and do our very best to, to find that place of empathy. Um, but because of that, I absolutely found a 12-year-old to review this film. <laughs> Excellent. Because <laughs> the other ones were too hard. <laughs> well, would you like me to start and so you can end on yeah, your high note then? Sure. All right. Well, I've got a one star by Stephen Ramhold, who has this to say. Sucked. Movie blue. What a terrible movie. And do not ever watch it. As bad as a movie gets. Yuck. Disgusting. <laughs> Uh, yes. Okay. Okay. I I didn't see that movie, but I'm and I, and I did. I, maybe I saw this movie. This is a. I'm just going to say the age right now, and see what you think. Let's just do a quick hot take reaction. Kid, twelve years old. Which you had already said. So oh, I, I did. That was Damn. Yeah. Oh, so I outed kid, my, right? I played myself. Okay. <laughs> kid, twelve years old gives us a two-star and says it's dull and very grown up. I don't know why people love this film. Nothing happens until the end. The only good actors in the film are Ozzie Davis and Danny Aiello. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Constant swears and racial slurs dominate this film. The blacks destroy a pizza place and set it on fire, and cops stick a baton in another black person's mouth until he chokes and dies, and a woman's bare breasts are shown. If you want to see a Spike Lee movie, there are better ones out there. Wow. Okay. Right? Summarized some key plot points. What I think is interesting is is it's bamboozled that he's talking about being the one that he prefers. <laughs> That actually is a great point. That wasn't the one I was thinking of. For me, it's as he says, it's so dull and very grown up. And the only two actors he talks about are probably two of the three oldest actors in the movie. <laughs> right. The elderly Ozzie uh, Davis. Like what 12-year-old is going, oh, that Ozzie Davis. God, sure. I really can relate to that Ozzie Davis and Ruby D. <laughs> uh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. 
support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.